This is Season 2, Episode 23 of The Language Mastery Show with Michael and Ellen Robinson. Here's a little sample of what's coming up. I think it's really important for us to keep in mind what a privilege it is to be able to study another language. Because I think sometimes in the States, there's a lot of resentment towards populations of people who are living in the States, but really just living in their communities and speaking their native language and not really acquiring English. Mm -hmm. And it's so meaningful to kind of be on the other side of that and be the be the minority in a in a in another country trying to learn that language and to fully appreciate how difficult it really is. Welcome back to the Language Mastery Show. This is your host, John Fotheringham. Today's episode I chat with Michael and Ellen Robbins. In the interview, we get into how they both learned Spanish, how they actually met through Spanish, and some of the lessons that they've learned, both learning the languages themselves and also now raising their children bilingually. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. All right. Enjoy my chat with Michael and Ellen. Hey, good morning. Good. How are you guys doing? Good. (laughs) So this is my first time interviewing a couple. This will be fun. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. Awesome, awesome. I wish my bookshelf was as nice and tidy as yours is. Yeah, it's a it's a funny thing because I um, well, as part of kind of getting into the whole financial independence thing, one of the things that I cut was buying books, and so this is kind of my like, <laughs> memory of past financial decisions. That I mean, buying books is definitely far far better, probably than a lot of other things I could have spent money on. But my God, yeah. I spent a lot well, of money on books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had the same idiosyncrasy and we still it still worked out okay, so don't yeah. despair. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. yeah, it's just it's 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 a it was a problem. You know, <laughs> yeah. anytime I go to a bookstore, I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna buy any books, I'm not gonna buy any books. Fast forward thirty <laughs> minutes, like, you know, handful of books and yeah, yeah. But so it goes. Uh, has a, his book buying habit requires um hardcover. Which I've never fully. not always, but often. I, I can I can relate. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. uh there's some something about the quality of, of a hardcover book. Um mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I mentioned to you, Michael, when we chatted, but I'm about to release the first print version of my book, Master Japanese, which I've had in digital format for ten years already. But uh yeah. I was looking into doing a hardcover on Amazon KDP and it was gonna add like fifteen dollars to the like manufacturing mm. price i'm like mm, no we'll we'll go soft cover for this one <laughs> right <laughs> and then it's like yeah, that makes sense yeah so anyway yeah no i didn't know we didn't talk about that but i gathered that actually from your skype uh status i think it said something oh, does like it still that, say that? Like, i was forgetting about working on a book. yeah in fact i should probably update that soon um yeah it's coming out october 28th so that that's pretty exciting i'm in the final that's stages cool. of typo checking for the umpteenth time um and then rosemary's gonna give it a full read on monday so there's another pair of eyes on it because our brains cannot find our own typos i've learned right yeah it's amazing it is amazing just glosses right over it so there's probably a metaphor for that in like life in general we don't see our own mistakes (laughs) or i see them after they've been published right right like oh my, I'm famous for having typos like in the titles of things or like in the first paragraph or, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 
it's pretty much every text message I've ever sent. It's like send and then read and then, oh, why didn't I read it before I sent it? <laughs> <laughs> Pat Oswald, the comedian, had a great bit where he his wife had sent him something and he was trying to say, like, I hate it when something. But he just said, okay. I hate. And then... <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just generally, I yeah, just I not... hate. I hate. <laughs> that is my default disposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it came to my mind also, uh, I didn't include this in that email with the the topics, but one of the things I think would be really fun to touch on is sort of the Venn diagram of phi and languages and sort of how you know, one of the biggest things I think about financial independence is creating time freedom and how mm -hmm. one of the most common excuses people have for not learning languages, I don't have time. And so that might be an interesting um, tangent. Maybe if we get into it is how, yeah. how having more time and more freedom has sort of either empowered or enabled you to maybe do more travel and language learning, or, or maybe, maybe it's the same. Maybe you've just always done it. Yeah. You've made time for it. So. Well, no, I'd say that dovetails nicely into um, to our background, our story. So, um, you know, we, Ellen and I met in Mexico while we were doing like five months there together, mm -hmm. taking, you know, took time off from jobs and everything, had some savings, lived on savings to to do an intense Spanish. Just both happened to be doing the same thing when we met. Right. And, um, and she took a whole school year off again to kind of further her Spanish. She, you know, I was still working remotely, but um, and then, you know, after, like you said, post we had these, those, those breaks, but then after financial independence, we kind of looked at ourselves and said like, how much, what are we going to do with this time? And mm -hmm. one wild idea was, well, why don't we go live abroad again? We've always wanted to do that picture doing that when the kids are older, but why don't we do that now? So I think, I think, yeah, it can, that topic could easily dovetail into all that. Awesome. Yeah. And I do want to touch on your story too. Have you met? Cause I'm a, I'm a sucker for love stories and yeah, and your Rosemary story was pretty touching that you shared at, uh, at FinCon. Oh yeah. Well, we're, yeah, that was a pretty serendipitous thing. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, and the fact that we almost would have, we would have met either way almost in different parts of the world. It's kind of, kind of weird how that worked out, but yeah. also I loved, I was looking on your about page, but your sort of three part, your triumvirate thing of planning action and sacrifice, I think it'd also be kind of cool to touch on. Cause that, I, I think that dovetails really well into language learning too. Cause you right. can't, yeah, you need a plan and you obviously have to actually do it. And then it does take some sacrifice because if you're learning a language, you're not doing something else. So first thing I'd like to get into is your origin story about languages. I know you guys have kind of a fun, uh, romantic component to this of, of how Spanish and love sort of came together at once. So I'd love to hear, uh, both how you met and then how you got into languages and how that story overlaps. Okay. Well, I started um, studying Spanish in eighth grade when they gave us the choice of learning either French or Spanish. My mom's cousin married a Mexican man and they run an English school in Cuernavaca, Mexico. And so I grew up with their kids about my age. They were, you know, they're technically my second cousins, but um, I have a small family. And so they were my cousins. And every time they came to visit us in the States, I was just kind of blown away by their ability to speak in Spanish and in English. 
Um, their mom would force them to speak English around me so that I guess we felt comfortable and just to force them to practice their English. And anyway, I was really inspired by that. And so when it came down to hmm, French or Spanish in eighth grade, I chose Spanish so that I could be more like my cousins who could speak both English and Spanish. And um, then Michael and I, uh, fast forward, when I was um, in college, I, I did a minor in Spanish and um, kind of had this vague sense of wanting to be able to use Spanish to help me get a teaching job because um, I, I just wanted to be able to kind of go further with the places I was looking to get a job. And I felt like having Spanish as a background would help with that. And um, finished college. I had studied abroad in uh, Granada, Spain Mm -hmm. for about a semester. And then after I graduated, I just felt like, man, (laughs) I don't actually speak this language well enough to do anything with it. So I um, went to Cuernavaca to live with my aunt and uncle um, and study Spanish at a Spanish language school. And um, on my first day, I met this guy with long hair and I was very drawn to at the time <laughs> and um we just became instant friends and even though I went there determined not to befriend any Americans yeah. because I knew it would be detrimental to my language development which I had done in Spain of course I met him and and a couple other people that we befriended and you know of course we we just hung out a lot <laughs> so, yeah. So for me, I was um, I needed another, I don't know, four credit hours or something in Spanish to get my minor and to graduate with a, a bachelor's and a minor in Spanish. And I was so rusty in Spanish at that point. It had been several years and I'd done mostly academic Spanish that I thought an immersion program was going to be the best way for me to, to do that. And I went to this immersion program in Cuernavaca, Mexico, where Ellen was at the time. And the good thing for me is I arrived one week before Ellen, uh, before I met Ellen. And in that week of immersion and really working on Spanish, I got my Spanish up to a level where I could convince her hanging out with me wasn't going to be something that was going to derail her Spanish acquisition. I spoke just enough Spanish at that moment that it was, uh, I passed. He yeah. came up to, I think the first Monday, I think I had an orientation on a Saturday and I met him there then. And then on that following Monday, he came up to me on the campus and he said, do you want to go study Spanish at the, is this big public garden in the middle of Cornavaca? And I looked at him very suspiciously like, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he said something about how we could speak in Spanish the whole time. I was like, well, all right. And so, um, we walked all the way to that garden and spoke in Spanish the entire time. And I felt like, well, this will be okay. But, you know, we did eventually just slip back into English as as you do. So but it worked out great because here we are. How many years later? Fifteen years later with two beautiful children living in Manizales, Colombia. And I'm quite happy. And all because of Spanish. Thanks to Spanish. (laughs) The the power of language. Thank you, Spanish. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. This language episode is brought to you by Spanish. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you know, that's an interesting uh, tangent that we could go down here, which is this idea that a lot of couples that, you know, do come together through languages, often it's somebody who is maybe a native English speaker, and then the other side is somebody who is a native speaker of that target language. And I think right. the goal often is, okay, we're only going to speak this target language, but 
inevitably the relationship will take precedent over one's goals to learn the language, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I, I, I think that that's something to be aware of that if, if your number one goal is just to learn that language, then maybe it might be worth being aware of that going in and not having false expectations that, you know, Oh, I'm just going to date a Spanish speaker and then that'll be that. And I'll, I'll be fluent with the snap of the finger, but, um, right. it doesn't necessarily work out that way. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So fast forward now, you you mentioned you have two kiddos now, which I believe you guys are raising them bilingually. Is that correct? That's our, that's what we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. So we, they're, um, they're three and five now and Ellen and I, you know, you were talking about people kind of over, overconfident in the rate at which you can become fluent. I don't think either of us ever say we're fluent in Spanish, even though we're very capable. Um, and as two non-native Spanish speakers, it's tricky to teach your kids to be bilingual in Spanish, to teach them to acquire the language unless, um, you know, one of the two is, is a native Spanish speaker. So the way we've solved for that is, um, as a family, we've taken on this project of kind of living it, living abroad and having our kids in, you know, daycares where they're exposed to Spanish all day long. And now that they're a little bit older, they're basically in preschool, um, doing, you know, eight, nine hour days, a hundred percent in Spanish, um, and have been, uh, off and on for most of, um, you know, for the better part of my daughter's life, the three-year-old's life. So, so are you, then you're spending most of the time abroad and then just traveling back to the U S or is it the other way around these days? So we, I'll, um, back up and just kind of the, how this came together mm-hmm. for us is another, we've also been pursuing, um, we long, long have been pursuing financial independence and this, this idea that we would, you know, save up enough money to be able to live off of for the rest of our lives early in our life. So we would, we made a lot of sacrifices where we were trying to live on Ellen's, you know, bilingual teacher income and later live on her nonprofit income and save my kind of sales guy, small tech company income mm-hmm. doing that back in, um, you know, we reached, reached this point where we could technically retire in, uh, the spring of 2014, but we both enjoyed our jobs, kept working. Um, but we had a, when my daughter was born, Ellen decided to stay home. And then a few, maybe a few months later, I stopped working full time as well. So October 16, neither of us were working full time. We're two stay at home parents and looked at each other and, you know, we'd always thought we would do this, take the kids abroad and, and live abroad when they were older and they would get more out of the memories of visiting the places, you know, it's kind of a, you know, we realize a lot of the cultural experiences may be lost on them before they're old enough to form memories. My right. daughter was nine months when we made the first trip, but we decided because of the language acquisition prospect to go ahead and do it. So, um, October 16, we were thinking about where, you know, maybe we do this wild idea. And we had a friend of ours who was like, if you guys are going to do it, I'll do it too. Our friend died. So the three of us kind of picked a place on the map. We ended up going to Cuenca, Ecuador, uh, for a, for a winter, just for three months, just to try it out. Well, and we w- liked winter it in air quotes, I guess, cause it's not really <laughs> winter. Yeah. Air, right? yeah. The Colorado winter. Yeah. It was yes, winter yes. for us Coloradoans, but yeah, yeah, to your point, it's, it's very temperate year round in near the equator like that. So we went for three months. We liked it enough that went back to Colorado for seven months and then decided to go back to Cuenca, Ecuador again, the second winter. Um, 
And then really after those two periods, while we were in uh, Cuenca, I'll let Ellen talk about it, but we, we met a really inspiring couple that really set us on this, where we're at now. So the first time we went to Cuenca, we were there for those three months and probably our last week we were there, we were introduced to another couple that was living there abroad with their two young girls. We just met them at the big playground in the middle of the city and, and just, and we walked away from that and Michael and I looked at each other like, man, bummer we met them so late in our time here because they're mm-hmm. so great. And we just got along with them really well. And, um, but we ended up going back to Cuenca a year later and they were still there. And we ended up having, um, we were able to, you know, develop the friendship and spent a lot more time with them. And their girls were, I think, three and five when they got there. And so they were um, four and six when they left, I believe. And they had just enrolled them in the local schools there in Cuenca. And, um, you know, uh, their names are Chad and Carrie. Anybody who's in the um, financial independence community know probably about Chad Carson. Coach Carson does a real estate investment. Anyway, Chad and Carrie would say like, oh, yeah, the girls are speaking Spanish, but they just won't speak it with us. Um, But they tell us that they're using it and everything. And and so one day, Carrie and I were at a local pool with her girls and my um, eldest, Leo, and um, one of their friends from school swam over and the girls just switched into Spanish. Right. And I was blown away <laughs> because Michael, Michael and I used to walk the kids to their, um, their little school every day. And he would, he would try to convince me that we should live abroad longer. And wouldn't it be so great if the kids were bilingual? And I was just very skeptical because I didn't want to be away from home for that long. And I just didn't know how feasible it really was like, okay, sure, if we come here for longer, how likely are the kids to actually be speaking Spanish? It just felt like a very elusive goal to me. And then I heard Carrie's little girls just switching into the Spanish. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is like it's doable. This can happen. And so that was really what it took for me. And then Michael also on a separate occasion got to hear the girls switch into Spanish when they started playing with some of the kids that came over. And it was that was really um, pretty big um, moment for us. And then that was when we decided, okay, we're going to live abroad longer before Leo starts kindergarten. Yeah, so that couple, Chad and Carrie, it was 17 months start to finish. And at the end of that, their girls were, their teachers were telling them their girls were functionally bilingual and equivalent to the other, equivalent in Spanish to the other kids in their class. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. so for us, we were like, okay, well, we've done the two winners in in, um, in in Ecuador. Let's go somewhere maybe 14 to 18 months and do one really big push to have our kids achieve uh, fluency as well. And we started, um, we spent five months in Costa Rica. We intended to be there for a full, you know, the full 14 to 18 months. But we had this pivot moment where I had to come back for a conference anyways. We decided to come back as a family and then use that as a chance to go somewhere else. And and we settled on where we are now, this city called Manizales in Colombia. That's, it's really beautiful. We're really happy here and the kids are thriving in their school. So we do think we'll stay here probably until around April or May. Amazing. One of the things that I think is important to point out here as well that you kind of touched on is that I think 
there's often this idea that, okay, we want our kids to be bilingual, so let's put them in a school or let's take them to this program and, or, or we'll, we ourselves will try to speak to them in this language. But what definitely I've observed, and I think this is supported by the literature, is that they need to have peers that actually speak that language. And that's really where they're going to both learn it and practice it is with people their same age. If they don't use that language, they won't be able to play and interact. And then that's the carrot mm-hmm. is they want some Pokemon cards or they want <laughs> they want a piece right. of your, you know, your your lunch or something. And it, it that's the carrot. It's no matter how much you think it would be good for them to speak that language, that's not going to be enough. Does that right. align with your experience? Most definitely. I mean, we're really fortunate that we were able to start this when our kids were so young, because for them, it's always just been about playing. So they show up at their school and they get to play um, and it just happens to be in another language. And it's never for us had to be something where we're just telling them, no, you need to you need to be speaking in Spanish right now. Right. That was one thing that really stood out to me. I remember my cousins, you know, I was just, maybe I was like eight years old and they were seven and nine or something visiting. And I just remember them getting, um, scolded by their mom to speak in English. And I could tell it was really painful for them. And now as adults, they've, they've told me like, Oh yeah, that was, I really kind of hated it, but I'm grateful now. And so with that in the back of my mind, I've just thought, I'm, I don't want to make this something that they feel like they have to do. We don't make it a big deal. It just happens to be the language that they speak at their school. And we use a lot of it at home. And But I don't try to spend a lot of time correcting them. If, if, if Leo, especially, um, who's he's the five-year-old, if he's saying something and he just says um, something a little bit incorrect, I might just repeat it just like mm-hmm. you would with a toddler who's learning how to speak their first language. Right. Um, I don't make it anything that feels like um, a command because right. especially so he is a very, um, he's just, he does not like to be told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> he's a rebel. Yeah. I don't know where he gets that little, from. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no way we can tell Leo, Oh yeah, you have to do this. You have to learn Spanish. Right. So, or you have to say this this it's, way. Yeah. I think it's also important to note for people that if they, they do have children learning a foreign language or even adults themselves learning a foreign language, that those mistakes are normal and inevitable. And yes. what's really fascinating to me as a, with a background in linguistics is that you'll see the same exact mistakes made by both a native child learning their first language and an adult learning that as a foreign language. It goes through almost exactly the same you know, order of mistakes and, and, and correction also does not usually do much. It's just a matter of time and input and exposure and practice. And that those mistakes will then get fixed sort of on their own with, right. with, with enough. Um, anyway, I just find that really fascinating. So. I mean, yeah. And we, we try to keep it casual too. So they hear me saying things like, huh, I don't know how to say that in Spanish. Let me look that up. Or even now that their Spanish has gotten so good, they'll say something and I'll say, oh, do you know how to say this in Spanish? Or what does that word mean? And, you know, they see that we are also working on our own right. skills. They could be your teachers in, in some ways, probably. At a certain point, that's certainly going to happen. I yeah, feel like they're, yeah. they're they're just, um, well, they're spending eight or nine hours a day, nothing but Spanish. And right. we're frank, not, we're frankly not doing that. We're here. We're taking, uh, I think we're taking like six or nine hours a week of Spanish classes mm-hmm. still. Ourselves. It's a lot, but it's, yeah. but which is telling you then how much, uh, you know, 
we often say, oh, kids are better language learners. But I think one of the really important differences is that that's all they're doing. Mm-hmm, you know, if, right. you, if an adult were to have the same number of hours per week that a, a child would get of, in terms of exposure and practice, I mean, I think there, an argument can be made that they would actually get even further because they already know how to learn. They, they have, you already have a full vocabulary in your native language and you just have to then learn the equivalent in the, the new language where, you know, the analogy I always make is try teaching a kid what uh, metaphor means, for example, <laughs> right? Or photosynthesis. Like you already know what that means. You just have to learn the arbitrary phonemes of that concept in the new language, which is a much, I think, shorter process. Yeah. I would, um, I would say like I studied Spanish and I, I grew up in Texas, right? So there's Spanish all around me, but I started studying in seventh grade through high school. I did all the Spanish classes I could in high school and was not conversational in Spanish after the, you know, six years or whatever of, of classroom Spanish. I had a, a bigger vocabulary through practice on worksheets and things like that, but the school just didn't prioritize speaking. Right. In college, I, I thought I'm going to keep with keep with this Spanish thing, and I got a. Um, I did my first stint of study abroad. I went to Mexico. Basically, I walked by the study abroad office at, on campus and was like, "Wait a second, that's what I want. That's what I want. I don't want to be here in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. That's a thing." And I looked into it, and the cost was comparable to just staying in Dallas. Right. Um, I paid the tuition for at my university there, so I did a um, six or eight week, I think it was an eight week course at that same place I met Mexico, uh, Ellen four years later. And I was living with a host family. So for me, I would have breakfast with the host family. I would do 30 hours a week of classroom Spanish. And I was having breakfast, lunch, dinner with the host family every single day. And, you know, going out and socializing with, with, uh, certainly with gringos, um, expats, you know, but also with other, um, you know, with Mexican, nationals that were just interested in learning from or just interacting with expats. So Mm -hmm. for that two months, my whole world was Spanish. And even though I went from no conversational ability to pretty conversational just in two months. And at the end of that period of time, I was dreaming in Spanish. Like I would wake up and realize I was, Mm -hmm. I was such a part of my world that I would, it was, um, even occupying my dreams. Right. I'm way more fluent in Spanish now, but I have not had a similar period in my life where I've gained so much Spanish so quickly um, or where I've like, I don't dream in Spanish now, even though I have a much greater command of the language than I did then. So I do think, like you're saying, throw throw people into it full time and um, kid or adult, you'll get a lot out of it. That yeah, absolutely. And I think also as much as I think studying abroad or, or immersing yourself in the country is amazing. And I, I certainly have had that experience and I, I hope to do it again for, for other target languages. I do think it's important to point out for those listening that with modern technology that we now have, you can do a lot of immersion right at home and you really can create, it won't be as good, but it, you can get pretty darn close. I think with a little creativity and, you know, smart use of technology, you can create immersion for yourself no matter where in the world you are and that's that's a lot of what my master japanese book is about is how can you create japan for yourself wherever you happen to be like like right now i mean we're we're speaking on skype you guys are you know halfway around the world this very well could be a conversation with you guys in spanish even though i'm here in washington state and you're you know in columbia so 
um, I, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a good time to be alive, definitely for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. So another another period of productive Spanish improvement for me was two months at the beginning of this year while we were in um, Costa Rica. I found this company called Baselang, which is very similar to Italki, where mm. you where you get on Skype or Zoom. In this case, it was Zoom, and just have a conversation with people. And I think it was paying. What's cool about Baseling is it was a fixed monthly rate for unlimited hours, which uh, certainly encouraged the right behavior for me. Right. Somebody just likes to optimize thing, yeah. things best I can. Like that was exactly the the, the carrot that I needed was uh, a carrot and stick. Like I'm going to pay a hundred and I don't remember what it was, 130 or 150 dollars a month, regardless. Right. And I'm going to pay a hundred and squeeze every every last drop out of it. Yeah. Hour. But I was doing literally every single day. I was for a month or two. I was doing sixty or ninety minute or sometimes longer um, Spanish classes online, just one on one. And even though I was sitting in Costa Rica, it wasn't being in Costa Rica that was helping me further my Spanish. I could have just as easily been sitting right. in uh, my office in Fort Collins, Colorado, pushing myself in that same way. Absolutely. If anything, it maybe just makes it help. It gives you the will to do it because you feel like I'm in the country. I should be doing it, but right. And it's very possible anywhere. A combination of that and I would say like um, a good uh, flashcard program. Like I, I've used Memrise mm-hmm. and Brainscape as kind of the two that have been mm-hmm. most useful for me. Uh, but something like that, those two together, you know, trying to watch some media in, in Spanish, maybe reading in Spanish, those kind of activities can be done wherever you are. Exactly. Yeah. And especially now with, you know, Netflix and, you know, HBO and, and Hulu, all these streaming services have a ton, especially for Spanish. I mean, there's so much Spanish content there. So, yeah. um, you, you know, another point I want to touch on here that you sort of go start alluding to is even being in the country isn't necessarily a guarantee that you will quote unquote be immersed. I mean, I'm sure you've met plenty of gringos in, in expat in your experience who've been abroad for a long time and can barely speak the local language, if at all. Uh, I certainly had that experience in Japan, I mean, and Taiwan, where I met people who had been there for a decade and still could not order coffee, for example, Mm -hmm. in the local language to save their life. And it was was both sad and predictable um, and frustrating because they spread the idea both that the language is hard, which I, I have some thoughts on, which I as a personal policy, I never call language hard. I just say it's different. Um, mm-hmm. but, but also it, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know what, there's a lot, I have a lot of feelings about this, but, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I the, like, yeah, Go ahead. no, I was going to say just, just, just the most important thing being that number one, you know, going abroad can be wonderful, but it's no guarantee. But then the flip side, as we already talked about is that going abroad is no longer a requirement either that you can, as we talked about, you can immerse yourself anywhere. So, so both yourselves then having been expats and living abroad, what are some of the things you've tried to do to sort of avoid or at least mitigate the the danger of the the expat bubble? Well, we had we had a similar experience to you in, in uh, Costa Rica. Our, our Airbnb host had been there for ten years, and in, in Spanish, there's two and usted or two different ways that you can say you. He was not familiar with that concept after ten years, which for me was just unbelievable um and he was married to a costa rican lady right who barely spoke spanish and he was like in our house we speak spanglish you know we speak a mix of languages but for him speaking spanglish was like he was aware of some cognates that he would just 
choose to say that cognate in Spanish right ish you know <laughs> I guess back to your question the strategies um, for us you know we just look we take local classes um, we try to get engaged Ellen is uh, currently doing some volunteering at a um, like an organic farm yeah I, 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 is that it's a not wolf, really woofing thing or no, it's Different. it's incredibly informal, and I just feel really lucky that it it kind of fell into my lap. When we first rented an Airbnb here, the couple who owned the apartment invited us out to their like this property that they own, where they have some soccer fields, and they also have this organic. It's sort of like in between a garden and a farm, hmm. and they've got coffee trees and. They grow their own coffee, Amazing. harvest it, dry it, roast it all right there. And they're just incredibly genuine and kind people. And they invited us out with the kids one day and we didn't end up staying in their apartment. Um, we moved to a different one and I just thought, oh shoot, you know, they're not going to want to see us anymore. <laughs> but she reached out one day and asked and said, oh, if you ever want to come back out there with the kids, let me know. And I said, yeah, I really would love to go out there and help you because my background um, in the nonprofit world was working with school gardens. So I have a lot of experience actually with vegetables. And um, I just thought, man, how cool would it be if I could dig in the dirt and practice my Spanish? Mm -hmm. And um, she, you know, I said, I'd really love to volunteer. And she she was happy to have me. And now I go out there once a week and spend about half the day in Spanish with my hands in the dirt. And it's, it's perfect for me. That so sounds like heaven. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really great. Um, I, it's so good for my soul on both those and levels. Your microbiome. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I've, I've yeah. read that research. <laughs> and, yeah. um, so, but it took, you know, it took me kind of putting myself out there. Um, at first, I was a little too scared to reach out to her and say, hey, can I can I come work with you? But she reached out to me. I, I guess I was lucky in that way. And now it's, you know, it really is. It's, it's a little bit easier said than done when you come to these countries. And it's so easy to fall into the expat community. Yeah. And um, that's, I feel like we did that more in Cuenca. It was so easy to just be with our expat friends because there's such a big community there. And it's fun. Yeah. And you, and you have so much to relate about yeah. both from your home cultures, but also, you know, you're all non-native speakers and, you know, foreigners in this new place and you can relate and you can exchange frustrations and successes. And yeah, it, it's very, very comfortable and easy yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't think I don't think it's bad. I, I do think there's I think it's healthy to have some of that some of the time. Definitely, I think it's right. easy to get a little little crazy if you insist on oh I, like well even as you guys both started out the conversation that at first you're like nope I'm not gonna not gonna hang out with other other expats but life happens. <laughs> yeah. So I guess to answer the original question, for me, I need to be in a classroom and, and, and I need the structure of the Spanish instruction where, whereas Michael could sit down on his laptop and do the baseling, that didn't work for me. I needed to be like with other, other students or and right now, Michael and I are taking a class together because we couldn't find anybody else in Manizales to take a class with us, but Make um, your own. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. yeah, we just signed up and we can get anybody else. But anyway, um, I need that structure. And then I also um, have been trying to watch a Netflix show in Spanish and I keep the Spanish subtitles on and um, things like that. But for me, I need to know that I'm going to use my Spanish 
um, in the future. So when we originally went to Cuenca, um, when we had, you know, a two and a half year old and a nine month old, for me, the Spanish was just really secondary. I was so focused on being their mom that I just didn't see what would be the point of improving my Spanish. Cause what am I going to do when I go back to Colorado? And I felt similar when we went back the second time, but we ended up taking these Spanish classes, um, from a local, um, anyway, a a local guy, he was really excellent. And, but now I feel so motivated because I can see myself going back. I was a bilingual elementary teacher, um, before kids and before my nonprofit work. And I can see myself doing that again. And I see myself getting involved with the, um, the Spanish speaking community back at home Mm -hmm. in Colorado. And that is really, I feel like this is, this is my time to really hone the language. And that is very motivating for me to, to take and put the effort in because it's so you can live in another country for 10 years and not learn the language if you don't put in the effort. Right. And if you don't have a why, I think, to your point, right. you have a really powerful, strong, motivating why of why you're doing this, um, which I think is often a problem that people go into a foreign language with either, you know, it'd, it'd be nice or it'd be kind of cool or uh, maybe I'll use this someday, which usually that is it doesn't provide enough motivation to keep you going when things do get hard or inconvenient or, uh, you know, require sacrifice, which uh, I know that's something you guys talk about on your um, financial independence website, this idea of having, uh, I think it's the, what is it? The triumvirate of planning action and sacrifice for, for whatever you want. You were talking about that in the context of sort of design your life for, you know, sort of the financial side of things. But I think this applies really well too for language learning. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit of how, how would you apply that three-part model to language learning? Yeah. So for me, I'm coming from a perspective of I got into the financial independence blogs and world and everything. My path there was through productivity blogs and minimalism blogs. So mm-hmm. specifically, uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done is oh, yeah. a really worthwhile book for tackling any kind of projects, any kind of anything you want to achieve in your life. And I love that framework. So the planning and action really just like everything in your life can be um, broken down and is a project into a, a series of steps and just understanding that um, it's really useful to say, this is what's the next action I'm going to take on this project. And don't let it be this vague, you know, someday I'm going to speak Spanish, but what does it really look like? And, and, um, if that's the, if that's the goal, that that's, that's what you plan to do, then start putting together the the next action. Maybe it's call about one-on-one classes or recent, you know, check out that italki or whatever it is, but take some action and then just starting, start stringing the other actions. But, um, the sacrifice piece, I think, is important. It doesn't so much get talked about in the GTD, getting things done mm-hmm. methodology, but we all have finite time. We all have finite money and resources and energy. And um, saying yes to too many things can sometimes thwart your ability to do much of anything. So for Ellen and I right now, we're here and we're sacrificing our relationships with our friends in Colorado and with our, you know, our opportunities to see our family as often as we'd like and so forth to make this big push to have bilingual kids here shortly. And, um, when we go back to Colorado, they have a, they have a solid use case for their Spanish. When they get back, there's a really um, good bilingual school where they will, uh, my son will start kindergarten there in the fall of next year. And, um, it's a, just in our community, it's a really good school period. 
Um, it's one of the higher rated elementary schools just generally. And then it also happens to be a bilingual school. So, you know, we feel like this is a worthwhile project to be tackling now, but it's not, you know, with eyes wide open, we know there's so many things we're saying no to, to be able to say yes to this big project Right. right now. Right. Yeah. Nothing's free. That's cool to hear that they have that option for the school coming up. Because I was, I was actually going to ask, what were your plans to keep Spanish as part of their life going forward when you did return to the state? So that, that answers that. And I, I don't know about where you guys were living or will be living in Colorado, but is there a pretty sizable local community of Spanish speakers as well? Truth be told, um, Colorado is not really the most diverse state, mm-hmm. but um, you know, we lived in Dallas for eight years and that was certainly... You know, and I grew up for the most part in Dallas half my life. And, you know, it was kind of black kids and Hispanic kids and white kids in pretty equal measure in my school and in my in the apartment complex where I lived. So um, it won't it's not quite like that in in our community in Colorado. But um, there is like an immigrants rights group that we were that a friend of ours volunteered for that we might get involved in when we get back. Um, It's certainly there's certainly a presence. It's just um, it's going to take a little more. Um, action, more work on our part right. to get intentionality. Get yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think people often, especially here in the States that depending on where you live, yeah, it might not be an automatic thing, but um, I think with a little effort, definitely you can connect with um, folks from other places, almost, almost anywhere, depending on where you live. Um, that's cool. Um, so now that you've, both been learning Spanish for a number of years. You've lived abroad now a few times. I think together between you, you visited, what, was it 19 countries? Or you've lived in 19 countries, was it? Um, yeah, it's on our site, and I don't remember. I have to quickly go through <laughs> and count them again. Many if you countries. say so, I say yeah. yes, that's about right. <laughs> so a lot. The point is a lot. So what are some of the things that you know now, both about language learning, living abroad, raising children bilingually? What are some of the things you know now that you wish you would have known before all of that experience. One thing I'll touch on is um, you hear, like you were talking about the trope of kids just learn languages so fast. We came here and we're putting ourselves out, out there, making this big, taking on this big project and really kind of taking this big gamble that this is going to work. And the progress at first is so invisible yeah. that it's discouraging. So, you know, we did, you know, the three months in Ecuador, another three months in Ecuador five months in Costa Rica. And it was really towards the end of that five months in Costa Rica that the school started saying, you know what? We think your kids are understanding everything we say to them at this point. They're not saying much. They're not producing much language, but we think they understand everything after. And it took, you know, call it nine months scattered across those, those two years to reach that point. And coming here, you know, the teachers right away, we came, came here from, um, from Costa Rica with just like a six week gap that we spent visiting family and friends in the U S so they'd lost some progress, but they picked up pretty quickly where they left off. And the school was again, telling us they're understanding everything. But then we started to witness some of it ourselves after this, you know, nine, 10 months in, we started to finally kind of see a lot more visible progress. So the thing that I know now that I didn't know then is I wish I would have just had more confidence in this process. Um, and, you know, it's, it can be discouraging when you're eight, nine months in and you keep hearing, oh, kids learn languages so fast. And everybody's right. like, oh, yeah, your kids should just pick it up. No problem. Well, as you say, I guess the point is that they were picking it up. It's just they were going through, you know, in linguistics, they call it a silent period where you're sort of internalizing it in a in the understanding phase. But usually the output part doesn't happen until 
a while down the road. You know, the thought just occurred to me that in a way it's like compound interest in finance. This is sort of compound interest for language acquisition where you're putting all this money in, you're putting this money in, but the the magic doesn't really happen for, for some time. Yep. Yeah. Or, or a fitness program at a gym, you show you up go. and you work yeah. out, you work on muscles that have never been hit this way before. And two days later you can barely move and you're like, that sucked. <laughs> and I don't see any, I don't see any progress. Yeah. Months and months go by, you still see very little progress, but then, you know, as, as maybe a year and five years get strung together, it starts to really, really become very visible. James Clare in uh, Atomic Habits has that great analogy about an ice cube where, you know, you're, you're starting, let's say you start at zero degrees Fahrenheit and you're increasing the temperature one degree, one degree, one degree, and nothing happens, right? The ice, it's there, it's still an ice cube, still frozen, but then boom, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts to melt. And so I, I kind of, I think that sort of is how language goes as well. Is it, it seems like nothing's happening, but something is happening. You just can't see it yet until you kind of get enough, enough time on task. So yes. but trust the process, your point, be patient. Yeah. Some interesting observations with our kids in English, you know, you have past tense, present tense, future tense, mm-hmm. but it's all really fairly easy to construct in English. You have the infinitive. Um, so let's say to eat. I just put the word I in front of it and use the infinitive I eat or you eat or we eat. But I just put that word in front and I have the the construction I'm looking for. And that works across lots and lots of verbs. But in Spanish, every tense and then also every kind of combination of the pronoun and the tense has its own construction. Right. And you have to learn that across maybe 14, whatever it is, 12 or 14 tenses. But it can be kind of a lot. One of the more time consuming parts of acquiring Spanish in particular, and, I, and I'm sure other romance languages but what was neat for me was seeing a novel thing for me was seeing that my kids have seemed to grasp on quickly to the command form, <laughs> which is this mood in Spanish where you're, you know, you're saying, telling somebody to do something in kind of a bossy voice, like, come, go, take this, you know. But that's the first words I heard my son producing is like, daddy, bea, bea, daddy, benga, benga, daddy, toma. <laughs> It's uh, this sense of urgency. He, he's latched right onto this, which is probably for me like the least comfortable form that I still I don't use that often. I don't spend a lot of my time telling people to do something right. in a commanding voice. So it's kind of cool seeing that. And then just as this has been specifically here in Colombia, as they've been progressing, it's a lot of Spanglish now in our house where <laughs> they just have the words, the vocab words they they use most in Spanish that they go to first. My son has, if you picture like forming a pair of sunglasses with your fingers by putting your thumb and finger together over your eyes uh-huh. and having these like two circles in each of your hand, just like two nights ago, he was describing to us and he's like, mommy, daddy, English and Spanish for me are like this. And he put the two circles kind of like a Venn diagram overlapping. Yeah. He wrapped them into this full circle. Like it's just all kind of all mixed up, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was just a really beautiful analogy that I wanted to share. Yeah. I, and I think. There is this concern I know a lot of parents have if they are raising their kids bilingually that that it's going to slow them down or that they're going to get confused between the two. And I think the literature does support that it might slow down development of each one in the beginning, but then over time, actually, they'll be ahead in both languages at a certain point. Has that been your experience or have you read much about that? Again, we're kind of putting ourselves out on a limb, doing this wild experiment and hoping that that all works as um, as the literature suggests. I know like, you know, our son's not reading completely yet or anything. And and we have friends whose st- kids started reading at three. So we're like, 
we're like, oh man, are we two, we're two years behind, but obviously the, the same time they've absorbed much more Spanish and right. Yeah, they're doing the, twice the work. So again, yeah, like you said, in the long term, it shows you know it's they're not likely to end up way behind in in English. They're likely to catch up, but um, yeah, yeah, that's certainly a, certainly a concern. Yeah, I, I think the um, at dinner, <laughs> yeah, at dinner last night. So I I uh, said te quiero Leo, which is um, in Spanish. It translates as I want you, Leo, but it's the way that you most like it translates directly as I want you. Right. But in English, if you if you go around like saying "I want you," it sounds almost like lusty and, yes. and weird. Um, but in Spanish, it's just the way that you would say "I love you" with your friends and, right. and acquaintances and stuff. It's very common to say. So I said "Te quiero, Leo," and he said "Te quiero también, Daddy." And then my daughter said "I want mommy." <laughs> <laughs> so she's translating kind of the the Spanish back into English. Yeah, That's in this funny. interesting way. So seeing yeah. the way that the the languages are kind of crossing over for them in that way as well right now. And then Leo asked her this bizarre Spanglish question. He asked, what is the más importante que gusta Marce? Which is like, <laughs> totally makes, you know, yeah. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in Spanish, lo más importante would be like the most important. So what's the most important that you like Marcela? I don't, I don't know if he was asking, like, does he like mom or dad more or, or someone in his class or what? But just our house is this uh, yeah. currently this mix of both languages. It's really fun. It's creative. Yeah, it shows it shows an innovative use of the language. They're trying to play with it, which I think is really cool. No, this is fun. Yeah. Hey, John, can I? I I wanted to share something and um, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I, I guess it sort of answers your question that you asked a, a bit ago about, you know, what are some things you wish you had kind of known before you started all of this? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't fully answer that specific question, but it's, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind what a privilege it is to be able to study another language. Because I think sometimes in the States, there's a lot of resentment towards populations of people who are living in the States, but really just living in their communities and speaking their native language and not really acquiring English. Mm -hmm. And it's so meaningful to kind of be on the other side of that and be the, be the minority in a, in a, in another country trying to learn that language and to fully appreciate how difficult it really is and how much time it takes to, and how much effort. Um, And, you know, there's so many people who, um, go to the United States looking for work opportunities, and they just simply don't have the privilege of studying English. <laughs> right, or the time. <laughs> yeah, if you're working yeah. 12 hours a day or more, yeah. Exactly. Right. And so one of the things I I've, I have volunteered to teach English in the past, just when I was in college, it was just kind of something I kind of did because I was studying Spanish and I could communicate with the population of people who were trying to learn English, but it was not something I felt very passionate about. And I feel really a renewed passion for it. Um, And I'm really excited to go back to Colorado and connect with the community of people who don't have really the time to go on to baseline or the the money to go on to baseline, you know, to to acquire English, even though they're living in a predominantly English speaking city. And I just think that's, that perspective is really important to have. And it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that we're able to do this for our kids, because, 
you know, when they go back to Colorado, they are not in the minority and mm-hmm. they will have had the experience of what it, what is it like to be, you know, the only little blonde kid in a class mm-hmm. or the only one who doesn't know what's going on and right. they get what it's like to be uncomfortable. And I'm really excited for that life lesson that they'll carry with them as they grow older, that they would really not be able to, to get otherwise. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. I, I think everybody should have that experience in their life at one point, um, uh, of, of being, of being a minority, uh, of not understanding the local language of not, um, being able just to walk down the street and, um, you know, see your family or your friends. I mean, that, it can be difficult at the time, but to your point, it is such a profound life changing experience. And I, I, I wish more people had that opportunity or, or took action to actually, you know, engineer that experience into their lives. So good for you guys doing that for your kids. And I think it's going to pay off, uh, in the long run in, in ways that we can't even know yet. So hats off to you. And, uh, thanks also for, taking the action and, and making the sacrifices to engineer your life in a way that you could do that. And, you know, this isn't a, a financial independence podcast. Um, I would love to do one of those someday. So we'll maybe get to that eventually, but uh, definitely that's a whole other world that I encourage people to check out. Um, even if somebody doesn't end up necessarily taking the the path toward necessarily retiring early, I think there's a lot of best practices in that world that can help people at least create more time in their life so that they can pursue foreign languages or other passions that they might have and just kind of re- remove some of the hedonic treadmill part of, of modern life that so many get stuck in. So, so mm-hmm. congratulations on, on that as well. Um, it, you guys have had an amazing journey and it's, it's cool to see that it's just getting started. looks like with, uh, with the kiddos. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, John. Cool. Well, thanks guys for coming on. It's, uh, been fun chatting and i look forward to hearing more about how the kiddos adjust uh once you guys get back to colorado we have to do a a part two yeah that'd be fun we could have them on there we go <laughs> yeah we'll do we'll do a uh we'll, do, we'll, we'll flip the table and then we'll we'll hear how how things actually were for them and from their point of view <laughs> during all this time yeah that'd be interesting yeah. maybe maybe we should just have them on actually then we'll get the real scoop Right. <laughs> probably your youngest guest then at that point that would be true too yeah it'd be another first so <laughs> awesome thank you guys so much take care good luck thanks very much. much all right thanks guys thank you very much for listening for show notes again go to languagemastery.com slash show and if you enjoyed the program and want to help support us go to itunes or apple podcasts google podcasts wherever you listen to the show and leave a review it's really appreciated and helps more language learners find the show and get the tips they need to learn languages no matter where they live all right we'll see you next mastery monday have a good week